We are starting the show, though, talking about federal politics. And as you've likely heard on the news, there is a new leader of the Federal Conservative Party of Canada. And so I'm issuing a challenge to Justin Trudeau today. If you really understand the suffering of Canadians, Mr. Prime Minister, if you understand that people can't gas their cars, feed their families, or afford homes for themselves, if you really care, commit today that there will be no new tax increases on workers and on seniors. None. Pierre Polyev winning the leadership race this past weekend. So let's talk a little bit more about this now with Tasha Carradine, a political commentator. Tasha, thank you so much for coming back on the show. Oh, thanks. Thanks. Nice to be here. (laughs) I I know this was not the candidate that you were supporting. I think that actually was the last time we talked to you was when you had announced that you were going to be supporting Jean Charest. But what are your thoughts about how this played out? Well, obviously, it's, you know, for, for our team and for Mr. Sheree, it didn't play out the way that we had hoped. Um, that said, the party has spoken clearly. Uh, there's a very clear mandate Mr. Polyev has, and I've congratulated him on his victory. Uh, it was very decisive. And since he has been elected, um, he has made some very uh, positive statements. I think that a lot of people will agree with. Uh, he's hammering home on the points that conservatives agree with, as opposed to some of the things that people disagreed with in his campaign. So that is a good start. It's a good way to rally the troops and to make sure that people stay in the tent and stay involved. And I think that's, uh, like I said, it's a pos- it's positive outcome in that sense. And um, I think he feels very confident also because of the majority he got, uh, that he can now move forward, maybe hopefully with more fulsome policy stuff in the going going ahead. And when you say clearly, uh, absolutely looking at this, it was a first ballot victory, about 68% uh, support for Pierre Polyev. What do you think was it or, or what part of his message or part of his leadership campaign do you think uh, that led to him getting such resounding support? Well, I can't really drill down into all of it, not knowing, you know, exactly where that support uh, came from in terms of demographics. We do know that um, he did get a lot of support from young people, uh, with whom a freedom message, as I've said before, does resonate. Um, Other groups were not as open to that message, but he did find a lot of people also supportive of his ideas, I guess, uh, in terms of the less bossy government, that kind of thing. I mean, we know the rhetoric he had. Um, The things that I did disagree with during the campaign were things, you know, veering off into conspiracy theories and Bitcoin and that kind of thing, um, which he did not speak about since he's been elected. He gave a very prime ministerial speech. And so I'm hoping that he stays on track with the pieces that actually I think were constructive, that conservatives have traditionally supported, and that are common, like I said, to the different groups that didn't support him, that he needs to keep around if we're going to build a bigger tent and win the next election. And a lot of people, I think, myself included, learned things about Pierre Polyev that I didn't know before. And a lot of it from that speech are coming out because you're right, there was a definite shift from things he has talked about in the past to becoming a bit more personal, talking about how he was adopted by by school teachers, how important that was, and really kind of appealing to people that way. Were you surprised at all with that shift going from some of those points before to now, to now now learning about uh, more about the personal side of Pierre Polyev. Um, I think, you know, he's brought out um, his family, his family who accompanied him, his uh, wife and Ida was on the tour with him. I, I'd gone to uh, a couple of his rallies and events and other things, and she was a consistent part of that. 
Um, I think that uh, she's also obviously a very great asset. She was uh, extremely well spoken and um, you know supportive of uh, of the, the the whole I guess picture that he wants to present as well, which is someone who has a young family, understands people's uh, pain and suffering in terms of the, the difficulties they've been through. Um, you know, even though perhaps necessarily share them on a personal level he as a as a father can relate to anyone who has kids obviously so yeah we've learned a lot about him and his personal background and things like that but those are things that he has brought out if you didn't follow the campaign as closely perhaps you you didn't hear those little stage it's true he put everything out there and i think that's partly because he wants to create a, a human face as well people like their politicians they want them to be relatable. So that's what he did that for. Do you think this shows as well, and I know we've talked about this in the past, that it, it's a much different fight trying to become the leader of the federal Conservative Party as it is trying to become the Prime Minister of Canada? Well, um, there's going to be a lot of discussion about that because uh, the past two leaders have run in a different way that they ran for the leadership and then pivoted to run differently when they ran in the country and didn't really work out that well. Um, I'd like to think this isn't a pivot that he has made, but simply that he is going to focus on the things that people have in common, as opposed to the stuff that divided and that turned some people off. Um, We've got to get past the leadership if we're going to win, and you've got to get people to bury the hatchets uh, and not in each of his heads. So (laughs) that's the job of the leader. So he's starting to do that, I think, and uh, it's a good start. We'll see where things go. Everyone's, everyone's, you know, trying to be positive and optimistic, I think, uh, even in the camps that didn't win. So, And what do you think this means as far if you, if you can even kind of put on a, an even broader political commentator hat or political observer hat? If you were, say, in a liberal strategy session right now, what would you be doing as far as what do you think their biggest concern is now going up against Pierre Polyev as the leader of the opposition? Yeah, I think that they should be very nervous. Um, I think that uh, Pierre is actually taking a, a leaf from Justin Trudeau's playbook. When he was first elected, he brought his wife and his family out, a very human face, um, had the big rallies, had you know that enthusiasm. Um, I think that the Liberals, after a period of time in office, any party gets you know, people get tired of them and people are tired of Trudeau for just not long, not just longevity, but the damage that he's done to the country economically in particular. And so they're ready to hear something else. So I think that um, the, the liberals should worry. Um, they definitely uh, are responding already to the attacks that uh, that uh, Polyev has made on inflation and, and that their policies are lack thereof. And they've already brought out some stuff on that now as a reaction to that. So clearly, I think they, they realize that the next election will be an uphill battle for them. And do you think the next election will be uh, when it is set for now? Or do you think there's a possibility Canadians could be going to the polls sooner? Yeah, I honestly don't see the prime minister in any rush to pull the trigger. Uh, Until Quebec has had its election, until the UCP leadership has also probably been sorted out, um, I don't think that, you know, the, the feds are going to be rushing anyone or wanting to rush into a vote. I think they want to see the dust settle as to what happens, what they're going to be dealing with um, on a national level and where the polls go. And, they, you know, I don't go hang around till 2025. If I had to bet, I think that the trigger will be pulled earlier. But I don't see it in the immediate future. I don't think that, um, you know, we just had so many elections in the last few years that, that there's an appetite for that on anyone's part. All right. Tasha, always great to talk with you about all things politics. Thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you.
Well, the BC Wildlife Association has put out a release, uh, including information about what it says are thousands of sockeye salmon that have been apparently prepared for illegal sales and in many cases dumped along the Fraser River. So we wanted to find out more about this. And BC Wildlife Federation Executive Director Jesse Zeman joins us on the line now. Jesse Zeman, thank you so much for being with us. Afternoon, Joe. Thanks for having us on. Uh, so start uh, from the beginning. First first of all, are there any openings that for sockeye salmon at this point on the Fraser? Not, not until very recently were there any um, commercial openings, for sure. Um, we did see some um, food social ceremony openings earlier in the year, and the openings have continued. Now we have some commercial openings and some uh, public fishery openings. Um, but in terms of the sale of fish... Uh, there have been no openings till very recently to support that. Uh, but you've been seeing these sales or uh, or evidence of the sales. So talk us through a little bit. What have you actually seen happening? Yeah, certainly. So we have um, we have an app on on people's phone, which is a we call it the BC Wildlife Federation Conservation App, and it allows people to report uh, infractions related to uh, the sustainability of fish and wildlife and habitat. So what we started seeing was a number of reports kind of related to online sales of sockeye in the Lower Mainland on places like Facebook Marketplace, on Craigslist, and then we also started seeing pictures of fish that had been gutted or processed um, that were being thrown in the bush. Um, and then there was a case down in Stevenson in the harbor where there were four big totes, which is what are used to transport fish, um, that were full of rotting fish. And that, that kind of continued um, throughout August. And, you know, we were fielding a number of calls and as well at DFO enforcement has uh, along the same lines. Hmm. And, and so what do you think is happening then? Or, or how do you connect those dots? Yeah, sure. And so, so what we're seeing here is is that um, when we see illegal sales ramp up, typically, um, what you know, the result of that is we do find a lot of fish that have been discarded, thrown in the bush, or sometimes they're floating down the river. And so, what happens is that um, the black market for salmon on the Fraser really um, is driven by. Uh, uh, those who don't have the facilities to properly process and take care of these fish. And so essentially what happens is the fish are caught, they try to sell them right away because they don't have coolers to put them into, and then the fish goes bad. And when the fish goes bad, um, they discard the fish and go out and get more fish. And so, um, you know, the indication on our end is when we start seeing a lot of fish that have been dumped or thrown away, um, that's indication that illegal sales have really ramped up. And uh, for all of your listeners, members of the public who may be buying fish, um, you know, if you're buying it from sources that are not um, regulated and don't have the proper licenses, you could be putting your own health at risk. Uh, I remember being assigned um, at, at Global not that long ago, a few years ago, and it was specifically going, I believe we were in Langley, and we were sent to a place where there was illegal uh, salmon sale, uh, an illegal sale happening. But the DFO officers that were there, they were actually warning the people, not only the people selling, uh, things got a little heated, but they were also warning those who were showing up to purchase the fish, saying this is an illegal sale, and if you do this, you yourself could be punished or penalized. Is that, to your knowledge, is that still happening? Yeah, that's that's absolutely correct. So, so for an individual to sell fish, they need a license. They need a license, a federal license from the Department of Fisheries to go out and fish commercially. And then, secondly, they need licenses from the province that deals with food safe. So, the food, you know, the fish has to be cooled down. Then, the people that buy it, they they should be checking to make sure that the person who's selling it actually has the correct licenses. And then they'll also be issued a sales slip. 
And without a sales slip, if you get caught with salmon in your vehicle and you do not have either a fishing license or a sales slip to prove where it came from, you are automatically, you're, you're going to be fined or possibly charged by uh, the Department of Fisheries and Oceans because you cannot legally possess that fish. Hmm. And I would imagine there are a lot of people that, that don't realize or even, I mean, even doing a quick search on Craigslist, you can find a, a lot of different ads selling salmon that don't look completely above board. But is it also, do you think, do, do people not know that they perhaps are purchasing fish that were caught illegally and maybe weren't stored properly? Yeah, I think absolutely that's the case. I think absolutely that's that's true. And so this is a real educational piece on our side is to, you know, raise public awareness around the fact that, you know, this year sockeye came in whale below predicted on the Fraser. Um, there haven't been any legal fish sales um, from Fraser River sockeye. And then the last piece is, you know, what you need to check if you're going to buy fish. Wherever you get your fish from, they need to have a license. They need to have a provincial um, license as well to process the fish. And they need to give you a slip, a sales slip after you pay for the fish. Those are the three things that you really need. And uh, quite frankly, if, if you're looking for fish for sale and it's not coming from a company name or something to that effect, I would definitely recommend um, looking elsewhere for your fish. What about uh, as far as sustainability, though, and, and the, whoever it is, the people that are doing this, that are continuing uh, to, to catch the sockeye illegally and sell it, is there not enforcement there or do we not know who is doing that? Yeah, and so that that is a big part of the the frustration on our end is that um, as part of our news release, we put out that there was a unit uh, inside of the Department of Fisheries and Oceans uh, responsible for dealing with these legal sales, and that unit was disbanded about a decade ago. And we know, you know, the the people who are the enforcement officers are working as hard as they possibly can, but they're understaffed. They have a number of vacancies. um, They don't have the funding support that they need. And so, you know, from our perspective, this really speaks to the lack of interest from the government of Canada um, in the sense that we know that there, this is a rampant problem in the lower mainland, that fish are being wasted. Um, everyone's well aware that the Fraser River is not doing very well when it comes to salmon. And as a result, you know, we would be expecting a really big uh, response from the government of Canada, from the Ministry of DFO. And we really just haven't seen that. I mean, the government has been absent on this file. And so that's, I guess, part of our impetus to raising awareness. And is it something, as far as you know, is this something that happens every year and it's worse this year? Or what are you seeing? It it does. Yeah, it does happen. It seems like regularly, but it seems like it's getting worse. And I think part of that is really this lack of funding and capacity for enforcement officers. I think that's a big part of it is that, you know, DFO did have a big presence on the river and was targeting individuals who were illegally selling fish. And over time, the funding for these uh, enforcement officers has dwindled. The number of enforcement officers has dwindled. And the, the unit which was set up to essentially deal with these kind of sales was disbanded. And I mean, you know, that, that just really points to the lack of, you know, priority around the conservation of salmon and steelhead on the Fraser River. All right. Well, Jesse, thanks so much for joining us and for talking more uh, about this. I'm sure we will discuss it even further, but thank you so much for your time today. Thanks, Jill. Have a great day. 
Well, if you spent any time outside yesterday, you know it was smoky in many parts of Metro Vancouver. The air quality warning is extended as of today. That as some nearby wildfires continue burning and growing in some cases. So we wanted to talk about the air quality and what exactly breathing in those tiny particulates, what that does to our lungs and what we should be most careful about. So joining us to talk more about the health impacts of the smoky skies is Dr. Christopher Carlston, professor and head of respiratory medicine at the Department of Medicine at UBC. So great to have you back on the show. Thank you so much for being here. Oh, hi, Jill. How are you? Uh, Very well. How about you? Good, thanks. Uh, I, like many people, I think, noticed a very smoky smoky skies and smoky air uh, yesterday. What is the, the concern or the main concern when we're dealing with air and poor air quality? Well, I, I think perhaps because we are all affected, that's the problem, is, is that it's uh, an exposure that is blanketing the whole community. So it's kind of a numbers game. There are enough uh, vulnerable individuals that when we're all inhaling these high levels that our bodies aren't accustomed to, it only uh, takes a certain number of the population before we have some regrettable consequences. Fortunately, I, I think that'll be um, at this point in time with this particular um, event uh, modest, but, but the reason it's called an alert or advisory is because it's just making people aware and we need to always be thinking about it. And so what should people be doing then? If we start, let's start with people maybe that, that are more vulnerable, maybe people that have asthma or if you're more vulnerable to air quality, what should you be doing while this warning is in place and while we have such smoky skies? Yeah, so it's always a balance, and one of my main um, jobs, I feel, is to make sure that we're not too alarmist. Um, so the balance is, is essentially in moderating activities, so we need to think about what's absolutely necessary to get done outside. Um, that could include exercise for some people for their mental health and, um, and and just getting through the day. That could include shopping, et cetera. But what really needs to get done? And then maybe cut back on everything else. Uh, and then secondly, where am I going to spend um, most of my time? So uh, some, especially after COVID, there's all kinds of options now, and people have uh, kind of hybrid work arrangements. Maybe this is a time to favor a bigger um, building that will generally have better filtering, um, et cetera. So it's, it's that kind of thinking. And it's also thinking, you know, what happened last year? Because, you know, asthma is a broad category, severe asthma, moderate asthma, mild asthma, et cetera, for all the other diseases. And generally speaking, we've had these fires, uh, unfortunately, uh, most of the past years, and people will understand what they can tolerate. So really listen to yourself and what's happened in previous years, and that's a good guide of how to, how to deal with this. All right. So what should people be looking for as far as if, say, you are in one of those categories where you still need to be outside or you've spent some time outside, what, what kind of things should you be looking for to think that, you're, that you are kind of reacting to the smoke, to the particulate in the air? Yeah, so most of these, uh, the most people I'm most concerned with have diseases like asthma, COPD, or heart disease that they're really uh, accustomed to what it feels like when things are going a little bit in the wrong direction. So asthmatics start to feel a cough or tight chest or wheezing, shortness of breath, and they're going to know that from past experiences. So those are the, the, um, I wouldn't say easier, but those are the more familiar scenarios when it's, it's like, well, I've had 
some exacerbations. We call them avasma in the past. This is starting to feel what I what I feel when it's going in that direction. I need to take certain measures. And a, a part of this really is the healthcare providers. And I think that's probably where we can make some real impact is healthcare providers no longer thinking, you know, this is something I got to send these patients to a specialist to, or this is something that's really complicated and I need to, you know, get some special training. And it's really not. There's all kinds of guidance out there, and, and all healthcare professionals need to recognize this as a, a reality uh, to be familiar with and to be comfortable uh, counseling your everyday patient on. Uh, what is it actually doing to us as well? If we're breathing in these tiny, uh, these tiny uh, pieces of particulate, what does it actually do to our lungs? Right. So they, they are very small. Um, they're not each individual particle is not visible to the human eye. Um, so in the micron range, we call that. And because of that size, they're able to get deep into the lungs because the lungs, of course, divide into very, very tiny tubes, microscopic tubes. But because these particles are so small, they also get in there. And, you know, not to be too technical, Jill, but as the lungs get smaller and smaller, the ability for particles to get through the walls of the lungs, because the walls of the lungs, as the dividing lung gets deeper and deeper, get very, very um, uh, thin. And so these particles can actually get through those uh, uh, the tissues into the bloodstream, which surrounds the lungs. Again, not trying to be too te- technical. And that's where inflammation is caused all throughout the body. That's why air pollution is such a problem, is it can travel practically anywhere in the body. And, co- and that's why if you look at the list of problems associated with air pollution, it's practically head to toe. Hmm, okay. Uh, do masks help? I know we've talked so much about masks these past couple of years, but is wearing a mask outdoors now, not for COVID, but for smoky, hazy skies, do they offer a level of protection? Yeah, I'll tell you about a mask in a second. I just want, don't want to alarm people about the last thing. And the fact is that we breathe these things in every day, whether it's fire or not, and we have multiple, multiple levels to protect ourselves. So not, okay. you know, it's a, it's a balance. But on the masks, um, Yes, they, they, they do, and they certainly don't hurt. It, it's, we're pretty confident now that the old thinking that, oh, a mask is going to make it harder for me to breathe and actually work against me is, is, is very rare. So in general, they tend to help. And COVID's taught us that masks tend to help more than we realized, even simple, the so-called surgical masks, the blue and you know other colors that you see. Um, certainly a, what's called an N95 or uh, there, there are other uh, um, higher filtering masks out there. Those are better protective, but they do feel a little bit more restrictive. So virtually any mask is unlikely to hurt and probably helps. And thankfully, if there's anything good about COVID, um, people seem to be more accustomed and less sort of self-conscious about wearing masks. Right. And we certainly, yes, we've we've probably had more practice at that the last couple of years than uh, for most people uh, than ever before. Um, is there anything we need to be more concerned about in, in that it's particulate coming from forest fires? That's a really interesting question. The truth is that we, we don't know. It's one of the big, for me, scientific questions as to like what's worse. And there's probably no answer as to what's worse in terms of uh, particulates from traffic versus fires. Um, but I would say in general, um, they're, they're both equally concerning in the sense that they're both full of these tiny particles I mentioned before that get deep into lungs and other parts of the body, as I said. So I, I do think of them very similarly in terms of the broad advice that we give to people, you know, staying indoors, moderating activity, um, listening to your body, you know, having an air filter if you can afford one, going into a, a building that has air filter if you need to, et cetera, et cetera. So more similar than different.
And you mentioned air filters. I wanted to ask you about that as well, because uh, we've been talking about those also in that a lot of schools were supposed to get those HEPA filters and those air filters. And I've seen a few people questioning that too, saying with kids in classrooms now shutting the windows more because of the smoke and the haze in the air. Is it more important now that there are air, air filters in situations like that? Absolutely. Well, it's always been important, but I guess um, it's it's more important in the sense that we do have this um, COVID experience that y- you could argue it gives you sort of two major benefits. Um, but the, 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 the fundamental air filtering system that uh, filters the air that comes from the outside uh, is very, very effective in removing these particles if it's an adequate size filter, maintained, et cetera, et cetera. But I personally think it's a very reasonable and, and very cost-effective and um, really good use of taxpayer money to be spending on these kinds of systems in schools and healthcare facilities, um, et cetera. Right. Okay. And one other question, when you mentioned about the breathing this in and how it leads to inflammation and it can kind of affect all of you, and again, not to, to alarm people or, or to, to frighten people, but how do you recover from that? Or, or does the body then, if you do suffer the inflammation and you have been exposed to this, or maybe you've been breathing in this kind of air, how does the body then kind of heal itself or how do you get better? Yeah, well, thankfully, 99.9, et cetera, uh, percent of the time you do. And, you know, our, our lab and others, that's, that's what I do for a living is study those kinds of things. But there's tons of mechanisms. There's antioxidants in the body. So people take antioxidants, but really the best antioxidants we already have in our body. Um, there's cells in the lungs that gobble up these particles, and you could literally, literally see them under a microscope, the particles inside of these cells, and then you cough them out. So, you know, interestingly, um, the best example is if you're around a uh, campfire, the next morning you often have this, you know, kind of black stuff in your nose, and you maybe cough out a little blackish phlegm. It sounds gross, but that's literally the body getting rid of those uh, cells, and it happens every day, um, whether it's a dramatic sort of uh, event or something you don't even notice. Uh, your body does that. So thankfully, we have layers upon layers of um, systems to protect us. All right. And so in the meantime, then, like you said, uh, things like masks, air filters, maybe staying indoors if you can, best, best way to kind of protect ourselves as this air advisory continues? Yeah. And again, I think more and more, because this is an annual or nearly annual event, get used to what works. I mean, everyone's a little bit different. Everyone's circumstances and needs and priorities and demands are a little different. So figure out what works. And it's probably going to work, you know, if it worked last year, it's probably going to work this year. All right. Uh, Dr. Christopher Carlston, thanks so much again for coming back on the show. Appreciate it. All right, Jill. Have a great day. You too. Thanks for being with us on this Monday afternoon. Well, unfortunately, we do spend a good amount of time talking about scams and different scams that make their ways through communities. Sometimes they go away for a while, then they come back. And a lot of these scams are either by phone or in person. And in many cases, they target senior citizens. Well, North Vancouver police put out a warning saying that there have been at least six seniors in that community scam in the last few days. And we're talking about thousands of dollars being scammed from people thinking that they were helping out family members, but that was not the case at all. So as of Friday afternoon, North Vancouver RCMP put out that warning, making sure people were aware of these scams. Well, my next guest has a very personal connection to this story. Linda Buchanan joins us now, the mayor of the city of North Vancouver. Mayor Buchanan, thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you very much for having me, Jill. 
Well, unfortunately, I know in the past we've had much more uh, <laughs> lighthearted conversations about having a, a picnic and a drink in a park, but uh, <laughs> sadly that is not the, the subject today. Uh, tell us a bit about your connection to this warning about scams. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate the opportunity. Um, yeah, this is not uh, something that's as nice as uh, picnicking, in, picnicking in the park, but um, yeah, last Wednesday... Um, my mother was one of these victims that was being, that was scammed um, out of uh, a significant amount of money. Um, and really, uh, you know, it didn't come to our family's attention until the following day when she reached out to um, my daughter, who was who they were using as their ruse, um, you know, and had told my, my mother a very... Uh, Long story that my daughter had been in an accident. Uh, she was in jail um, and she needed bail money. Um, they even, so they, they um, impersonated police officers. They impersonated bailiff officers. They impersonated my da- our daughter. Um, so my mom, who's in her 80s, uh, who has very strong connections to all of our kids, was obviously emotionally distraught. Um, they told her that, you know, they, she couldn't tell her family because that would jeopardize uh, her granddaughter getting out of jail or she would be charged again. Um, they reached out to her uh, at least six times on the phone. Um, they even, after my mother going to the police, phoned again and impersonated um, her granddaughter, my daughter, um, to which my mom responded with, shame on you. <laughs> so, you know, it's it's deplorable. It's so, like, you know, as a family, we're obviously, you know, very upset. We're angry. Um, my mother is very shaken. Um, but, you know, this isn't just, you know, my mother. This this is other, obviously, parent, uh, people in our community who've been uh, victims of these crimes. And it is deplorable. I mean, it is the lowest of the low to go after seniors and use the love of their grandchildren or family members. Um, I, I just, I can't, I, I can't even describe to you how upset it makes me. No, and I know. And I think that that is coming through. And I think anybody hearing this uh, would, would feel the same way. Uh, I should mention your, your mom gave you permission, full permission to, to talk about this and to, to get this message out there. Because that's another thing, too, that we often hear from police or from officials that people feel embarrassed and they shouldn't. This, this happens. And, and as you described it, these are scammers. These are con artists that have this down to a whole system that they use to take advantage of people. Absolutely. And I think, uh, you know, this is, uh, you know, this is something we really need to be educating our, our loved ones and our, our elders in our community um, about this. And, you know, for my mom, yes, yeah, she's, she is, she is embarrassed. She's, you know, can sit back now and go, how did I, how did I not see this? And, you know, really trying to, to explain to her that these people are extremely skilled they are preying on your vulnerability of your your love and your your emotions for your for your loved ones, um, and I kind of said, you know, this is like walking into a a car dealership thinking I'm I'm buying a you know a compact car and I'm walking out with something much grander, and you know these are people who are very skilled at uh, you know uh, ups up 
using your emotions, upselling, upscaling, and and really um, preying on you. And I I just think we can't, you know, tell our seniors enough that they really just have to not not feel ashamed. You know, when you're when you're emotionally charged about something, you're not necessarily seeing the flags. When you're a bit calmer and sitting back, well, yes, now you can recognize all the signs. And so that's the part that really angers me as well. I mean, for many, you know, the money isn't, you know, for many, it is, uh, uh, any amount of money is, is tragic. But really, it is the emotional toll and the impact that, that this kind of crime has on people and really makes them second guess themselves and undermines them. And, you know, people should not be ashamed about this. They they really, um, this is what they do. And I think that we really have to make sure that our seniors are protected. I just find it the most heinous of of things to do to the elders in our community. And, you know, for my mother and like probably every other victim out there, my mom is in her 80s. She spent her entire life taking care of her family, her community, you know, countless hours helping other people. And I just, it's really upsetting. Do you know how they they targeted your mom? Or like you said, they used your daughter as saying, uh, I'm assuming the, the case that was put forward that they, they and you referenced this, that they, they said that, that she had been arrested and needed several thousand dollars for bail. And that, that was the story that they used? Yep. Um, well, I mean, we, you know, I live a public life, uh, that, but that does not mean my family lives a public life. Um, you know, uh, 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 we're not exactly sure as yet, um, but <laughs> I can tell you my mother won't be living, a, you know, won't be. She wants any social media she has to be, like, gone. And, you know, again, that is just, uh, again, something I find really upsetting and tragic as an outcome because, my mom comes from a very large family and that was her way of connecting with, with all of our family. We have a very large family and for her to be connected to her nieces and nephews and great nieces and nephews and siblings. Um, and she doesn't, she doesn't want to do that anymore. Right. And, and so do you think that the scammers then did they go on social media and that's how they were able to kind of cobble together a story that they were pretty confident would would tug at your mom's heartstrings or would make her react the way and that, that and that they they did that thinking that that would be the way to get money from her? I don't think we know exactly as yet, but we certainly are cooperating with the with the local RCMP and kind of working through that. Um, and and looking to see where where you know that vulnerable you know that vulnerable point where they could have accessed all all the information, um, but um, yeah, I, I do think again, I think they 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 go through everything that they can and then try to make those connections and again try to 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 take the most um, emotional point or something that you care very deeply about or love very deeply and and make you feel very anxious about and and. My mother would do anything for her grandchildren. Um, and so, like any grandparent would. Um, and so, uh, I think we still have to kind of work through where exactly the, the weaknesses are in, in some of these things. But I think as fast as we can do that, these people, again, are very skilled. And they will, they will keep kind of, and in fact, my mother was told by the um, RCMP that be prepared because they will probably come at you again they will try again and 
you know, this is how rattled my mom was. There was legitimately an RCMP officer who came to as follow up to to her home, and um, it took it took that RCMP officer quite a, a period of time to even have my mom open the door mm-hmm. because she was she was so she. She didn't trust herself to be able to. So, I, again, I just think this is this is the harder outcome. Um, money is money, um, it, and, and that's important too. But how this impacts people, like emotionally and then physically and psychologically afterwards, and quite frankly, is is what the bigger damage I think this this has. Especially in in this case too, because if I'm reading it correctly, and you mentioned this, this not only did they get your mom's phone number and contact her by phone, but they actually came to her house. They did. They came and they uh, to pick up um, the money, and you know it's a good thing she lives in a newer building, so there is you know footage, and so, but yes, they. Um, like I said, they're very sophisticated, and um, when people are, uh, you know, people aren't aren't necessarily thinking clearly because they're really concerned about their loved one. They 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 go to, you know, they go to great lengths to make sure that they are, you know, and what in their mind they're they're all they're thinking about is I'm helping, I'm helping my my granddaughter. Um, so it's a. Uh, I, I do hope we can, you know, that the RCMP will be able to track them down, and um, I probably have stronger words than I would <laughs> than I would say here today publicly. But um, I just think, you know, the more we can educate, the more we can help people spot it, the more we can actually even work with the financial institutions to, to you know, when people are walking into, you know, seniors are walking into banks and and withdrawing large amounts of cash. You know, that there's some due diligence around that and some double checking, um, just, you know, in a balance of trying to, you know, privacy as well. But also, you know, a few little questions that might, you know, help stop this in the middle of, of the process. Yeah, absolutely. And such an important message to get out there. And uh, Mayor, I'm so sorry to hear that this happened to your mother, but also uh, so good that you're talking about this publicly and raising this and making sure others are aware that this is happening once again. Uh, We'll leave it there for today. But again, thank you so much for joining us and helping spread the word about this. Well, thank you very much for having me. I really appreciate it. And like I said, I think hopefully... uh you know, we can help uh, somebody else not have to go through the same thing that my mother, as well as, you know, five other people across the city, but uh, across the North Shore and other places have been victimized as well. So I appreciate you, you know, getting the word out as well. So thank you for that, Jill. All right. Thanks again for your time. Appreciate it. Thank you.